This is Think Digital Futures. I'm Josh Nicholas. Even though White's opening might seem a little unusual, uh, it was specifically designed by Gary as kind of an anti-computer method, and history shows us that actually... So what you're listening to here is the commentary from one of the most famous chess matches ever. It's from back in 1997, and the reigning world chess champion, Gary Kasparov, is playing a computer called Deep Blue. And this was, in fact, one of the openings that he employed. So it shows that Kasparov has made a serious study of computers and computer chess history. Deep Blue actually won this match, making it the first time ever that a computer had beaten a world chess champion. It's a turning point in the history of artificial intelligence. Continue once more. We do have what you say, what you describe as Gary Kasparov's favorite um, defense. For the longest time, uh, we said artificial intelligence was being able to play chess because intelligent people play chess. So we thought artificial intelligence would be playing chess and we wanted to get computers to play good chess. This is Yusuf Pizan. He's the director of the game studio at the University of Technology, Sydney. Turns out we now have uh, computers that can play great uh, uh, chess. They can beat anybody in, in the world, but they're not really intelligent in other domains. So their uh, expertise, their intelligence is very much restricted. There are other areas that we thought uh, was very easy, such as uh, walking around on two legs. Every four-year-old is able to do it. We didn't think that required intelligence, but it has been a struggle to get our robots uh, to be two-legged, uh, walking around, going up and down the stairs. This is still a very active area of research, um, and although we didn't think it was part of artificial intelligence, there is a lot of intelligence in being able to manipulate and balance uh, your, yourself. So what Yusuf just said there is that games like chess play into one of computers' greatest strengths. Deep Blue, the computer that won those chess matches against Kasparov, had enormous calculating power at its disposal and a huge database of possible moves and old games to learn from. With every move that Kasparov made, Deep Blue would go back into its archives to see if it had been done before and what that would mean. It could then try and figure out a counter strategy. So what it would do is it would look at the current state of the chess game. It would look at every legal move it had and then it would look at every legal move the opponent could have for each of those moves. So this is Thomas Cox. He's a programmer at a little game studio in Canberra called Whalehammer Games. If I'm, I may move my knight, there's, yes. only, there's only a certain amount of spaces that I can move this knight. Yes. So he but, knows um, that and he can go, okay, if I, if I move this knight here, he could do this, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, and what the what the what Deep Blue was quite good at was picking, sort of looking at the moves, and rather than trying to look at every move, which obviously goes very becomes sort of out of control very quickly, <laughs> because like from the start of a chess game, each player has twenty legal moves. So if like even after the first two moves, you've got twenty times twenty is four hundred possible states, and then it's another like it multiplies out exponentially with each move. So what Deep Blue was very good at doing was um, pruning those decision trees and getting rid of the um, bad options very quickly. So looking at all the possible moves and going, well, all of those are bad, so I'm only going to look at, say, these three and then what the other 
what the possible moves after those three are. The thing that's immediately coming to my mind now is mm-hmm. when you're talking about you know a chess playing AI that can that's thinking ahead, and even yours yeah. is sort of thinking ahead. How is this different to the way I am thinking about the game? So that's where you start to get the comparison with the neural network. So what we're doing when we look at chess games is um, like when a grandmaster, a chess grandmaster looks at a chess board, they see patterns of powerful moves. They, they can like, there's been a lot of research done on this and like look, um, in fact, there's some really interesting research, which is that um, if you give a, chess grandmaster a bunch of chess setups some of which are from actual chess games and some of which are just random distributions of pieces on the board mm. um, the grandmaster can really easily memorize the ones that are legitimate game setups but has lots of trouble memorizing the ones that are just random pieces so what they're actually looking at is the patterns of pieces and how they're going to interact with each other and like they're sort of seeing what's going to happen next and that's um just a function of the way our brains work which is really advanced pattern matching yeah um, so what we're doing is we're not necessarily like we do, you will see grandmasters will sometimes look very far ahead down a very specific sequence of moves, but in general, what they're doing is, um, more of this probabilistic sort of stuff that you hear when you talk about the, when people are talking about the, um, self-driving cars and the neural network stuff, which is that their, their brains are sort of instantly feeding them two or three key moves that are likely to be the most successful and then they can think about what's going to happen so it's it's sort of like what the um sort of like what the um what deep blue is doing but with an element of fuzziness to it and an element of sort of what what feels like intuition and it's just sort of um like you don't actually explicitly consider every single move when you're trying to decide what you're going to do next in a chess game. Your brain rules a lot of them out very quickly for you. But how exactly does this work? How do you build up these databases and give a computer that kind of intuition that a chess grandmaster builds up over years? I took a trip to the office of Professor Hung Nguyen, who is an assistant deputy vice chancellor at UTS. But before that, at roughly the same time as this match between Kasparov and Deep Blue took place, Professor Nguyen was also experimenting with making computers play games. He started with tic-tac-toe, or noughts and crosses. So we start with tic-tac-toe. <laughs> so tic-tac-toe here, right? Again, now he start, the other guy to really move you know, and control the center, so he's trying to go for a draw here. Right. <laughs> <laughs> See? Right, and then move. some moves. Yeah. Okay. You see, and, and I'm nowhere inside. <laughs> right. You see, look, look, and this is older machine. Early PC. So is it is it registering the move that has just been made by the human and then and then it work out the next move. Professor Nguyen is showing us a video from his experiments back in 1996. He's built a little robot with an arm that can swoop in and place pieces on a little blue square that has the tic-tac-toe board drawn on it, 
the robot is playing against one of his research assistants. There's that one thing you have to do, try to have three in one life. <laughs> and so even if that is the only guidance you have. And so at first it will play and then it get bitten all the time. <laughs> it had to learn. It had to learn to actually how to avoid losing. <laughs> so it's an experience thing. It's an experience thing. It has to be. Self-learning is always do. Artificial intelligence exactly the same. You do the same thing. You can cheat by go directly into you know, the the guideline how to play and not to lose. Yeah. <laughs> and then you just put it in there. But you can give it blank. Blank rule, only the the uh, uh, what you have to do, but don't teach it how to play. Well, all you have to do is program it. Don't lose. <laughs> 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 it will keep on doing it. And things like tic-tac-toe, it will work it out with very quickly. You say, okay. Okay, you play against me, just put it in and it work it out. Every time it loses, it's not going to do it again. So it may be a bit hard to hear there, because there were some workers demolishing the office right above Professor Nguyen's. But this is really simple artificial intelligence. The professor had given his robot one instruction. It had to get three pieces in a row. That was it. The rest was a blank slate. The computer wasn't given any tactics or a guidebook. It had to learn it all by itself. And so every time it played, every time it was beaten by the research assistant, it recorded what had happened in its database and made sure never to make that mistake again. This is sort of what Deep Blue was doing. So my next one was Connect 4. <laughs> The Connect4, the problem with Connect4 is, yeah, and, and so we turn this one with Connect4, and when you actually put one, we'll slide it down to the, yeah. <laughs> you know, just like the, here you, well, in the sense you'd have to defend, because when you see two, you know, or, or you stop them, or they blend two from the two different directions. <laughs> yeah, that's next level. Then next level. I saw we Connect Four. So Connect Four is a lot harder than Tic Tac Toe on a few levels. But the biggest thing for AI is that you have to think about what the other person is doing. In Connect Four, a big part of the game is stopping your opponent winning. So the AI has to try and get in the mind of the other player. Chess is similar, but chess is quite complicated because sometimes you have to sacrifice. That is a different thing. Sometimes that you, you draw in, um, you know, you, you open a, a trap. Yeah. Okay. And the trap could be a few moves ahead. Yeah. And, so, and so that one, you can't get the next guy because there must be motive behind it. No. How do you train, how do you, or how do you tell an AI which piece to sacrifice? It will work it out. It will work it out. You, you can, there are many ways. One is 
is give a certain guideline. Right? You know that the, the importance of each piece. And so, if you can try this to the other one, right? You try your, your, your rook against the queen, wow. So obviously chess is way more complex than tic-tac-toe. Professor Nguyen can't just tell the computer to checkmate the king. He has to give it more information, like that the queen is more valuable than a bishop. And the thing about chess is, the very beginning and the very end of most chess games are similar, but what happens in the middle is completely up for grabs. And here the AI encounters a problem, figuring out what the human will do. Yes. So, so common one with chess AI. masters, they know to control the middle. They, they will control the middle, but sometimes that, that they start. But however, they actually draw people going into the middle to attack. Mm. Right? So you don't know. The guideline is start to the middle, but I wouldn't be surprised if they draw people towards the middle to open up weakness. Yeah. Right? So, you only need to actually look in a certain thing and you checkmate. And so, probably even five moves ahead. You find that the number of chess masters playing against uh, the computer, they sometimes they play differently. They know that it's a machine. And so, what's the psychology of machine? Sometimes that they actually work it out. A number of different people actually do that. Uh, they, they, they know the uh, the strength of computers because you know, they can see so many things. They, that their database is too big. Uh, probably the chess master only looking at know the database, but also the gut feeling, and and human just keep on learning and learning and set up trap. And if most people fall into the same trap, they use the same thing. <laughs> and, and you find that this one here, uh, right, as you can see that we actually play, and this one here, uh, the same. Finally, Professor Nguyen showed us his robot playing chess. The same arm, the same little blue square with pieces on it, but a whole lot more complicated. What is, it, what is the computer actually thinking? Most of the time, they actually is looking at the whole position. You know, so what the position. Uh, I think most of the time, I don't know. Um, at first, you know, this move very standard way. Um, you know, a number of different way how to deal with the opening mm -hmm. and how to deal with end games and that sort of thing. And uh, and the probably um, it follows through the safe, you know, the best way. You know, the best way it can win or go for a draw, mm -hmm. and uh, that sort of thing anyway. And along the way, actually, if it has time, it do the calculation, you know, even further and get the best possible move. But the thing is. It's not just in games like chess and tic-tac-toe that you find artificial intelligence. In fact, most video games contain some kind of AI. It's in the characters you play against. So uh, in any kind of computer game, uh, you might have non-player characters 
and their behaviors are determined by algorithms. Their de uh, behaviors are determined by probabilities. Um, in something like Pac-Man, uh, you have the four different ghosts, and the, re and the red one, Blinky, is the, is the chaser. Its algorithm is very well uh, determined. If we know how, we, how it behaves. And Clyde, the orange one, is a little bit slow and stupid and doesn't always go in the uh, right direction. Even uh, this level of behavior creates the perception of having some kind of a character uh, for these ghosts. And then uh, we come to uh, more complex games. Uh, we, we take something like Skyrim. And in this one, uh, we have much more complex uh, characters. Uh, we have uh, characters that might remember previous conversations, uh, characters that might observe events and based on that change uh, their attitude to and towards you. But at the end of the day, uh, it is just a, a bit more complex uh, model and a bit longer algorithm and that is determining their behavior. Why was Pac-Man so simple? compared to something like Skyrim? Was it just that we didn't have the computer te like the computing power to run something like what runs nowadays? Yeah. Um, at, the, at the time of Pac-Man, we didn't have any computer power almost. <laughs> it was running on such simple machines on such limited amounts of um, memory. Uh, just getting the graphics uh, output uh, was, um, was a big uh, struggle. So as our computers have gotten uh, more complicated and uh, as our CPUs have uh, gro and grown bigger, as we have passed more and more of the graphics to the graphics cards and the GPU, we have a lot more CPU and computational power to do more interesting things with these non-player characters. We also have gotten a lot better in looking at uh, past game traces, uh, looking at histories, compiling this data, and being able to create abstractions and based on previous games to create characters that might be more believable. If we go inside the head of the Pac-Man ghost, what are the decisions that he's making, or she's making? Okay. Um, so. In, in, a, in, a, in a way, uh, a lot of the technology since Pac-Man has uh, still the same kind of architecture. Uh, one of the important tricks that get uh, uh, used is uh, finite sta uh, state machines. Uh, finite state machines essentially uh, tell a character what its current be um, behavior is and the conditions under uh, when that current behavior uh, might change. And um, for example, uh, a typical uh, Pac-Man ghost uh, would be in the machine of wandering around. So it might uh, go in one direction, and when it uh, reaches a cor uh, corner, it randomly chooses another direction uh, to um, go into. If at some point it is in a corridor where it can see the pl um, player, it switches uh, to an uh, another state, which is have observed the player now in the chasing state. And go, uh, in that case, it continues to keep going towards the player. And uh, by the time it gets to the next cor uh, corner, if it's still able to observe the player, it will continue the chasing, uh, chasing behavior. If the player uh, during this time uh, in the game of Pac-Man manages to eat the cherry, um, and so, uh, suddenly the ghosts change their beha um, behavior. Now uh, they have to run away from the pla um, player and they go into another uh, finite uh, sta uh, state where they are running away from the behavior. If we okay, if we if we jump forward a couple of decades, then so back into my time now. Like I, I grew up in the time of Nintendo sixty four, 
and so there was loads of, you know, racing games or battle games or all these kind of things where I can, was it, is it a similar architecture? Like if you think of, you know, Mario Kart, where you've got a similar defined arena, like a, like a Pac-Man maze, and you've got a goal. So we're all trying to get to the end. Is, is it a similar kind of architecture behind these characters? And the architecture is uh, still similar, but we have also learned a lot more about what the role of artificial intelligence in a game should be. Our first thoughts were AIs were supposed to be really good and be able to beat people. And then we realized that people really didn't like losing game, game after game, that it was no fun um, playing against the computer if you were going to lose every time. And so we have um, modified the role of AI uh, to provide sufficient entertainment and challenge uh, for, um, for the player. A lot of the ra uh, racing games, uh, the AIs will be trailing uh, really close to you uh, and just behind you, or they'll be right in front of you, uh, giving you hope that you can still catch up uh, and, uh, and, pa and pass them. It's not because they're not able to do any better, it's because that if they did so, so much better, it would not be a fun experience for, uh, for the player. We made a um, turn-based strategy game called Zahira Echoes of the Astral Empire. So for people who don't know what that means, turn-based strategy is where basically it's similar to chess in its structure in that you take a turn and move your characters and attack and all that sort of stuff, then the enemy, the AI, does the same thing and it goes back and forth. This is Tom from earlier. In a strategy game, I have to, I have to go against something smart, right? I can't just be going against some dumb bot otherwise it gets really boring well not necessarily so um the thing about games ai um compared to sort of your research ai which i would like to talk about mm -hmm. is that games ai is trying to be as quick and dirty as possible whilst giving the illusion of an intelligent ai so whilst something like the chess computer that beat um the world champion back in the 90s um deep blue that it, all it has to do is be good at chess yeah and it can take like so it's got a competitive chess game it has like three hours of thinking time to just be good at chess but in a um in a in a computer game, in a video game, what you've got is um, you've got a computer that's also being used to render the world and like update the game state and do all these other things that also has to dedicate time regularly to making the AI not be terrible. Mm. So whereas in like the cutting edge stuff, all you're doing is creating this AI that's like, so you can spend all your resources on that. Often in games, you've got a very limited budget of how much time and computing power your AI can actually take up. When we're talking about AI in your context with the games that you mm -hmm. can make, what does it mean? So what, what, are the, what is the computer actually doing when I move my piece or when I, when I do my action? What is the computer seeing and what is it doing? What it's seeing, our game actually uses very, very simple AI. It only evaluates all the possible moves that it can take now because basically we tr I tried to create a more complex one than that and it, was just, it just became too slow because in our game you've got um, each faction has up to 20 units at a time each of which can take up to maybe 20 to 30 moves at a time so that just gets out of control way too quickly so instead what it does is it just looks at every possible move for every possible unit it has that can move at the moment and then looks at the ones that would um, deal the most damage to the enemy 
amongst those moves. Um, it does have some, like it does have some things called heuristics, which are um, sort of uh, values it looks for where it can like um, basically keep. There, there for example, uh, some of our units uh, have a passive ability whereby when they're standing next to each other, they get a defensive bonus. So each of the enemy units, once once one unit has moved, it will try and move its other units next to that one to maintain that defensive bonus. Let's say I can I can really wallop you in five moves, but I have to mm -hmm. set up some pieces. I have to put some things in process to get to there. It can do that. Um, to a limited extent, yes. It can't sort of like it can't really do really advanced things like set traps or um, think like. Well, if I do this, then you're going to do this, but then I can do this back to you. It's it's not going to think that far ahead, but it can coordinate the movement of all these units. It's moving at the same time. How do you give it objectives? So you know, you're saying your your um, your AI in, in your game is trying to deal me a bunch of damage. How are yeah. you setting it up? Like, how do you create that framework? Okay, so to give you an example from our game, there is a level in our game where the AI's objective is actually to take out specific units that are on the same team as the player, but the player doesn't actually have control of. So it's sort of like a race between the player and the enemy there where you're trying to get to these units and save them before the AI can sweep in and kill them. Okay. Um, so in that instance, what the AI is doing is it's still got it it's still evaluating every move but the criteria it uses to determine whether a move is good and the way it does this in our game is it just has a score essentially that um is a number and it just picks the best number out of all of the moves but basically the criteria that affect that score are different for ai with different objectives so for in the instance where uh, an ai in this case is trying to hunt down specific units what what I do is for each move, I give it a score based on how close it is to those units. Oh, so and the it's closer trying to build it up get, its score, basically. I'm sorry, I didn't catch that. So then it's basically trying to build up its score. Yeah, it's trying to get the highest score it can with the moves it can make. And so what I've got to do as the programmer is sort of juggle all the different things it's trying to do and score them appropriately so that it... Um, acts in a way that seems credible. So for example, if all I made it do was just hunt down blindly these units and ignore the other player units that were nearby, that would be kind of strange because it would just be running past enemies that it could be attacking. <laughs> so what I got to do is prioritize finding, like if it can attack one of its targets and one of the player units, it will go for the target. But then if it can't, if it can only attack uh, one of those player units that isn't its target, it will still attack that unit but it will also be trying to get as close as it can to its targets at the same time. If, if, you, if you were still stuck in, you know, the Pac-Man days, yep. how does that change what you would have created? Like, how, how would your AI be different if it's that simple? And then at the other end, like, if in 20 years' time I come back and chat to you, like, what then does it, what is your, from your side, what does it look like differently? So it's it's a matter of complexity, I guess. So because, like, what I was talking about with, like, the um, basically the number of possible moves spirals out of control real fast the further ahead you look. So the, the consequence of that is that you've only got a number of um, 
I guess, computations your computer can do per every second or however long it's got to make a decision about what move it's going to make. Um, so back 20 years ago, I would have probably had to cut out or, or one of two things. I either would have had to be much smarter about how, like what my, what moves my AI was considering or I would have had to give it more time or I would have had to cut down on the number of different things it was considering in terms of what it's doing for its move. Like, as I said, there are lots of different things it looks at when deciding how good each move is. I would probably have to have reduced the number of things it looks at. Okay, okay. And then to look at the other end to what I would do if, you know, 20 years from now is I would probably look at making it look further ahead and then looking at what the player can do back to the AI and trying to plan around that more, which it doesn't do. Like, and to go back to the example of Deep Blue, um, that's what it's doing is really looking ahead more because that's all it has to do and it's got to do it in a much more contained scope because even though, like, chess, its number of moves do spiral out of control very fast, it's still many, many, like, orders of magnitudes fewer than the moves that my AI has to consider just because of the natures of the game. You've been listening to Think Digital Futures, stories from the digital age. You can subscribe to our podcast by searching for Think Digital Futures on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. If you've liked what you've heard, please rate us and leave a review. It really helps us get discovered. This program is a collaboration between UTS and 2SER and was produced by Jake Morecambe. I'm Josh Nicholas. Talk to you next time.